Oh my, we're talking about turkeys and how to cook them. No, just kidding. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody. Hey, welcome to Zerus TV. I'm here with uh, my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar, um, and Elle, our producer. We're gonna quickly go do some introductions in reverse order of our guests. We're gonna start with Scott, go to Vanessa and Jesper. Uh, where are you calling from? What are you gonna be talking about today? And then we're gonna start the show. Hi, so I'm Scott Soldi. Uh, I'm Chief Analytics Officer at FICO from San Diego, and hey. I'm gonna spend time on uh, responsible AI. Woohoo! All right, Vanessa. Uh, thanks, Ray. Thanks for having me today. Um, I'm Vanessa Colella. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at City. Um, we're going to talk about innovation in a time of great disruption. All right, and Jesper. And I'm Jesper Anderson. I'm CEO and President of Infoblocks, and an old colleague of yours, Ray. It's great to see you again. And I'm going to be talking about optimizing the modern network. Woohoo! All right, we got an awesome show. Um, I guess we're going to go do the honors. So let's get everybody ready. And then uh, for all those folks that are listening in, um, as you know, we are being uh, sponsored by Robots and Pencils. So if you get a chance, you're looking at design, looking at innovation, looking at what you're trying to do in digital transformation, um, check them out, Robots and Pencils. All right, Al, let's start. All right, three, two, one. Uh, hello and welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live during our show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review, and he's always on television, business, and technology news on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg. In my humble opinion, he's the top uh, futurist to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Vala. Here with my awesome co-host, Vala Asher, and you all know him on Twitter. He's the number one person to follow for CIOs, CEOs, and CMOs looking for inspiration and looking for transformation. You can catch him on Twitter every time, every part of the week. And more importantly, you can see him on Business TV as well as keynotes throughout the world. So with that, we're here with our awesome guest today. Who do we have first, Vala? Ray, it's our privilege to have Jesper Anderson, Chief Executive Officer and President of Infoblocks. Jesper is a seasoned networking and software industry executive with track record of building high growth businesses. Under his leadership, Infoblox diversified its core network services into hybrid and multi-cloud environments and expanded into security services to protect and extend networks. These strategic shifts fueled Infoblox's strong growth over the last half decade as the financial services, healthcare, government, and other key customer sectors digitally transformed to a cloud-first world. A transition made more urgent, certainly uh, by the need to enable remote work during this uh, pandemic. More than 8,000 customers trust Infoblox foundational infrastructure services to optimize connectivity across increasingly hybrid networks and secure corporate assets wherever they are. Prior to joining Infoblox in 2014, Jasper served as several senior roles at Cisco Systems, including Senior Vice President of Network Management and Senior Vice President of Services Portfolio Video. You can follow Jasper on Twitter at JESPER2302. Welcome, Jasper, to Disrupt. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> Thank you, hey. sir. 
This is awesome. I'm, I'm glad you're here because one of the top issues we've been talking about is really how's the digital landscape? How has COVID impacted that digital landscape? And you're probably one of the top people we should be talking to about what's going on. So, so what's changed? What's going on? And how's this managed to change the complete yeah. digital landscape? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, obviously, the key change for many of us in many of the industries is we sort of rapidly overnight had to change to work from home. Right. Offices closed down. We closed down in March and all of a sudden everyone's got to work from home. And that created a, 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 a lot of changes for different companies. The, the IT architectures that companies had deployed in some cases just weren't ready for that at all. In a networking world, that meant if if everyone had to log into the office when you were on the road via old fashioned VPN technology, all of a sudden companies needed a lot more VPN concentrators and they couldn't necessarily get and implement those quickly. So it just exacerbated this need for cloud-based type of architectures. And so luckily we at Infoblox have a lot of great solutions that are, that are really important for our customers on, from that perspective. As one example, a large consulting company, all of a sudden that we're used to having consultants work on site, all of a sudden 200,000 people working from home, different security paradigm when you're dialing in from home. So it was very important for that customer that we could implement our Blocks One Threat Defense security solution in two days. Two days live with 200,000 wow. users. What right? would that so, normally have taken? How much time well, would that normally have First taken? of all, if it was an old on-prem type of solution where you had to go through a reseller, acquire appliances, which has kind of been the way networking worked for a long time, implement those this sometimes can take like a year right so wow that's a very different way of thinking about it so this move into cloud and SaaS services has been very important and accelerated with this with COVID-19 so what, you know, it's, one it's year two-day deployments oh sorry, yeah. go ahead so, no, yeah. it's just such a such an important lesson there because um you know, at times of uncertainties, more so than ever, companies need to demonstrate they can create value at the speed of need. Yep. And, and when you go to a centralized, to a decentralized digital only overnight light switch, starting in March due to the pandemic, companies that were able to realize optimal speed were companies that were designed for movement. Um, you know, uh, cloud first yep. companies are designed for movement. Salesforce moved 54,000 employees literally over yep. the weekend work work from home so it's so critically it's, it's it's hard to imagine that you could compress a year to a couple of days without having that digital first mentality so jasper talk to us about just the just the the, the work environment uh, you know what, what are your clients what, what have they felt in terms of cultural and transformation acceleration during the last eight months and how your company is working with them closely to ensure that they can continue to adjust with these next normals that really we have no experts yeah. about what's going to you know we, these are these are once in a lifetime events that yeah. we've, we've witnessed in the last 10 months well, i think you said the key word and both of you are our key leaders and key sort of bringers of of communication if you like around digital transformation right and i think what we are seeing as part of this is it's almost kind of like the haves and have nots. Mm. The company that were very advanced in their digital transformation that had 
taken a cloud first mentality. So, you know, we have some great customers. Some of them have mandates that have said, you will not, to, to the CIO, you will not have any data centers two years from now. So you must wow. extend and move all your applications into the cloud. Those companies tended to do really well through this last half year of this pandemic. But sadly, there are companies that had put off for a variety of reasons this digital transformation. And frankly, they were caught somewhat surprised. And I know for a fact that there are conversations in boardrooms around the world right now where someone lost market share to someone else because that someone else was more advanced in their digital transformation strategy. And so I think the key is that if you didn't have a digital transformation plan, if you weren't advanced and leaning into this, yeah, you probably lost out the last half year, but all is not lost yet, but you probably better take that to heart and really, really think about digital transformation. And to me, it's not just working from home, it's an opportunity. Those that do it well, and both of you know that because you preach that as well, is it's an opportunity to, to rethink your market landscape and how you go to market and where can you take market share in different ways by your dif digital platform, right? So to me, that's kind of exciting. I wanted the follow-up question, you know, it was John Wooden, famous UCLA basketball coach who said, go fast, but don't hurry. You see these years of accelerated cultural and digital transformation in months. How do you ensure the proper security and scale mm. as you're doing this? Because these are like brand pillars. If yeah. you're not, if you're not a secure environment and you don't have one that scales, yeah. that could quickly become a boardroom discussion as well, and not in a good way. Uh, how do you how do you help these haves and have-nots to make sure that they're taking the proper precautions yeah. as they're trying to meet their stakeholder expectations? Yeah, I think look, I my my belief is it's really important to have sound architectural principles from an IT perspective. And that goes across infrastructure and across your application landscape and certainly in security as well. I think the good news is if people are starting on that journey. It's not like you have to reinvent the wheel, right? There are a lot of great frameworks. You asked specifically about security. So there's this thing called the NIST framework, N-I-S-T framework, that defines a set of processes and a set of best practices for how you help secure your business. That NIST framework is the foundation, incidentally, of SOC 2 certifications, of a FedRAMP process for technology vendors. So it's really a, a great place to start to define the kind of things you need around governance and around you know, disaster recovery and all those things that's part of that. So that would be my advice to people is don't just go to the best vendor here or there and oh, this looks like a great solution and a shiny object. You're gonna end up with lots of little islands of automation and that could make it really hard to integrate. Be be, be specific about what you're trying to do, ruthlessly prioritize your needs, and then implement uh, according to those architectures that you've established. I think that's actually very important. Great advice. You know, it's a great point too. And, and one of the things that also happened with COVID-19 is the fact that we're moving to more work from anywhere or remote work. And we're also seeing borderless enterprises emerge. Uh, mm -hmm. But part of that 
It also means our attack surfaces are kind of, I mean, they've expanded, like you're, we're under threat all the time. So, so when you're talking about delivering next level network experience, there's a little bit more than just, you know, getting these network services to work. There's also the security aspects. Share us a little yeah. bit about what's been happening to some of your clients, because, you know, it's been a very scary time given all the attacks that are going on. Yeah, this idea of next level networking that we preach a lot at Infoblox, maybe just to step back from a background a little bit. My view as a software person coming into networking when I joined Cisco was always that, you know, in the compute and storage world, I'm old enough to remember the days where you had to procure servers and install them in data centers. It could take months to do. And nowadays, you go to AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, and you can get as many compute nodes and allocate storage to them in seconds as you want. So why is it that network is lacking so, so far behind? The idea of next level networking and next level security is I want all of those same services on demand at the tip of my fingers in a SaaS service way. There are no technical reasons why you shouldn't be able to do that. So at Infoblox, we built our cloud platform called Blocks One to deliver those services. And we deliver foundational networking services like DNS and DHCP today and in the future other services. And the same thing with security. Why shouldn't you be able to consume firewall services and proxy services and all of that in that kind of fashion? It's just an it's an old mentality in the networking industry. The leaders in our industry, like Cisco Systems and others, have this innovator's dilemma of can't quite cannibalize myself. And that kind of opens up the opportunity for other companies from that perspective. The interaction mode in next level networking is very different. The old world of every network administrator working from these fancy GUI screens that were different for Palo Alto and for Checkpoint and mm -hmm. for Bluecoat and so on. That's not how a modern organization operates. They use automation tools. They use Ansible and Terraform, what we call DevOps. Yep. DevOps is becoming DevNetOps. DevOps is becoming Dev. Net SecOps. It's all coming together in one automation. And that's kind of what I'm excited about. And that's what next level networking and security services means for Infoblox and for our customers. We were joking about that. Is it AI Sec DevOps Net? Is it NetSec AI DevOps? <laughs> it's getting crazy define, over there. <laughs> I'll let you define that, Ray. You're much better at that. You have a much bigger following. So. We'll, we'll post that to Scott when we, when we close out. Yes. Yes, Jasper, I've been out of the space for five years, but is there a momentum and shift to software-defined networking and really next-generation networks leaning more into software intellectual property versus hardware and clay christensen's innovators yeah. dilemma you know if you're in a network infrastructure business like cisco and a large amount of your revenue comes from ethernet switching and routing yeah. uh you know making that hard pivot into you know becoming a software ai powered application yeah. company is is is, is not easy yeah. uh, but it seems to be the you know the, 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 the next generation network. it is happening just for some right context Go ahead. Ray. I was going to say, just for some context, uh, Vala used to be the CM of Extreme Network, so yes. just uh, and worked at yep. Paris. I competed against <laughs> yeah. Cisco for twenty years. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and it was always a hard fought battle. But I will say, absolutely, if you look at the trends, right? When I left Cisco six years ago, that trend wasn't obvious. But to give Cisco credit, today they sell Meraki for their Wi-Fi services, right? That's well, yeah. that's for all intent purposes an SDN what? solution. You what? look at pick a different networking space like proxy servers that you're familiar with Vala as well. That used to be Bluecoat. 
networks that used to be WebSense network, now Forcepoint. But that's not what people are implementing anymore. They're implementing Zscaler, a complete SaaS solution. So yeah, it's absolutely happened. The whole move to SD-WAN is effectively, even though a lot of the SD-WAN vendors are kind of just not fully SDN, it's sort of more like the next generation routing. It is a move to at least a world where the control and management plane and networking is getting put into the cloud. And you know, there are still boxes out there, still hardware in our world. We run our network services in containers and they can run anywhere, as you know. So that's kind of architecturally where we're heading. Makes sense, makes sense. Wow. Now here's the other thing, right? We're, we're adding so many devices, so many connection points out there, right? It's getting super complicated. So yeah. what's required to handle like the hybrid environment? Yeah, I think it's important to realize that uh, that the complexity, as you say, are growing, right? Part of what the Infoblox solution provides is what we call IP address management. So if you're a large enterprise and you have sometimes actually millions of IP addresses, you need a robust, easy to use application where you can have full visibility and control over those IP addresses. You can't have overlapping IP addresses and conflicts. Now that whole application really gets turned inside out when you start extending into the cloud because you don't mm. control what IP addresses you have in Amazon. Amazon does, mm. but you still need to manage them. They still need to be consistent with the rest of your in IT infrastructure and you still need your applications to map to those IP addresses. You still need the right visibility and control rules. So if anything, that complexity has has driven a demand for more modern types of solutions in areas like the ones we are in and that other networking vendors are in as well. And then of course, with that complexity, now all of a sudden that gives even more need for a DevOps type of solution because you can't manage that from a graphical user interface. You have to manage it from a more of a, a sort of automation platform perspective. Jasper, I'm curious, do CIOs have a more prominent role now, um, given the last uh, given the last 10 months of the pandemic and companies realizing that, you know, obviously culture, talent and process are success factors. But if you don't lean into technology, if you don't have the proper tech stack, it's just hard to compete yeah. in this in this next normal. So do you have a sense uh, as you guide, yeah. you know, your, your incredible CIO clientele that they have the CEO's ear, they have the CFO's ear, and they're even active in boardroom discussions in terms of the, you know, the technology roadmap of the future that will define their success. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, uh, one of the things I love about my job, of course, is, you know, when I get an opportunity to talk to some of the largest companies around the world, and, and although we mainly we're mainly in the IT space, we do get a chance to talk to leaders at all levels of an organization, and we can do that virtually now with technologies like these. Uh, I do think it's it's interesting when we meet with our clients. You sometimes can get a little cynical when you look at an organization and you see the organizational placement of not just the CIO, mm. but the CISO as well, right? So the Chief sure. Information Security Officer. Sure. The two rules of thumbs that I've kind of kind of developed, right? One is if the CIO and the CISO are in different buildings and they don't have people on each other's teams, that's probably a business you should be worried about being a customer of, right? Because of security concerns. Sure. The other one is 
if the CIO is buried way down in your organization, mm. to your point, Mala, reporting into the CFO and maybe further down, that's actually concerning. Yeah. I think in the best run companies today, no matter what size they are and whatever industry they're in, the CIO either reports to the CEO or is a member of the executive team at some level and is regularly at every management meeting and at every board meeting. How else are you going to make digital transformation a first-class citizen and a top priority in your company? And no matter what company in whatever industry I would be CEO of, I would have the CIO reporting directly to me. It's I'm arguably totally the most important function right now. I agree. I, and, and, and the ones that know there are no IT projects, they're only business projects, meaning they have business acumen, technology acumen, yeah. and they add value to all the different lines of business. They embrace shadow IT because it's yeah. a reflection of things they can be doing at scale. I 100%, I 100%. And by the way, some of the most successful companies that I know do have CIOs that have a, a very strong seat at the table. Yep. So I agree with you 100%. Yep. Yep. Hey, thank you so much. We're here with Jesper Anderson, CEO and president of InfoBlocks, leading one of the top portfolios in the Vista Equity uh, universe. And of course, you can follow him at Twitter at J-E-S-P-E-R 2302. Thanks a lot, Jesper. Happy Friday. Thanks for having thank us. You. Have a good thank day. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. You were terrific. That was great. It was great. Great CEO advice. Um, it's, it's, you know, every company is a technology company. Speaking of great advice and great insights, our next guest is Vanessa Kalala, City's Chief Innovation Officer and Head of City's Ventures and City Productivity Teams. Vanessa's goal is to accelerate and discover new resources of value by championing innovation so that City can compete more effectively in a world of technological, behavioral, and social change. What, what an amazing uh, combination of uh, things that we need to think about this year. City Ventures team drives innovation by exploring, incubating, and investing in new ideas and partnering with category-defining startups to help people, businesses, and communities thrive. City Productivity team works to transform the employee experience by leveraging the power of process simplification, operating model design, new technology to help city increase efficiency and effectiveness. Before assuming the role of chief innovation officer, Vanessa led ventures investing in the D10X for City Ventures and previously ran marketing for City's North America Consumer Bank. Uh, she joined Citibank in 2010 from U.S. Venture Partners, where she was an entrepreneur and resident. Vanessa was recognized on the Global Corporate Venture Power List for many years in a row, was named to the Institutional Investors Fintech Finance as well, multiple years in a row. She's a chartered member of Teach for America, a published author and lecturer, teaches courses at Santa Fe Institute, and previously served at research fellow at Rockefeller University. We only have a 20-minute segment, so I had to cut your bio short. Vanessa's done a lot. <laughs> welcome, Vanessa. What's she doing on this show, actually? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Thank you, Gala. Thank you, Ray. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Hey, before we jump into the topic around innovation, you've, you've been talking a lot about what happens next, right? Post-pandemic, uh, in COVID-19, what happens to workers? How do we bring people back? Um, share a little bit of some of that. We've seen you on CNBC. We've seen you on blogs on LinkedIn. You've kind of been ever talking about what's so important and why, what we have to do to bring people back. Well, thanks, Ray. I think it's a critical question. Um, I've written about what, what I think of as the equitable return. I think mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people have spoken during the pandemic about flexibility. Um, I would say it's not flexible when it's not a choice. And we've all, you know, those of us who have the privilege of being able to still work from our little Zoom rectangles, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're already in a, in a privileged position. And, 
And I think as we think about returning, which obviously is difficult with the numbers that we're seeing right now in the US, um, but as we think about returning, we have to understand that, well, the, the three crises that have hit us, right, the pandemic, economic dislocation, racial equity crisis, we're all living through them, but we're actually all living through them very unique to our circumstances, right? So people who have frontline workers in their home, people who live with their parents like Bala and I do, um, people who um, who have you know, kids in school or, or people who are at high risk, um, there, there are lots of different circumstances. And, and I think all companies need to be attuned to this because when you start returning people to more of an office setting, um, not everyone is going to be equally able to go back or feel equally comfortable. So I think we don't want to inadvertently um, further and you know impede the progress of groups that we've been trying to pull and you know pull up for many many years. Whether that be you know female leaders, minorities, et cetera, who have been so hard hit by the pandemic. And and you know as we inch our way back to whatever the next normal is, it's not the same for any one of us. Absolutely. And you, your writing speaks to uh, terrific advice. You wrote about the humanity is key to managing global teams. And you said, you know, be compassionate, recognize that we're all struggling, relentlessly prioritize, relentlessly prioritize so you don't add additional unnecessary stress. Uh, take project-based approach to work, start asynchronous group chats and give per people permission to raise their hand at the time of need. I love your writing because it's pragmatic advice for all levels in an organization. And you can't humanize a business without empathy and, 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 and courage. My question though is about innovation. It's in your title, what an awesome title. Uh, and uh, you talk about innovation in a big company like City, giant company. And some of the work that you do, which is like bleeding edge work, you, you know, you're working with startups and you're really investing in capabilities that large enterprises may not see for years. What does innovation mean to you and City, and, and why is it so important, especially now? Yeah, Vala, you know, I think it couldn't be a better example in 2020 of why innovation is important, right? They say necessity is the mother of invention, and we've all, we've all invented um, as we get through this year and beyond. You know, how do I think of it at City? You know, we are trying to help our clients at City progress economically. We're trying to figure out how can we better serve them. And in a world that's changing, not just technologically, but where people's behavior is changing, in many cases, the societal structure is changing, we have to constantly be thinking about what's next. Um, what's fascinating about sort of heading innovation at a company like City is that innovation does not live in one person and it doesn't live in one group, right? Innovation lives in how people wake up in the morning and how they think about coming to work, how they think about where their new ideas might fit. And, and you know, in a global, highly regulated bank, it's really important to realize that you have to find ways to experiment, right? It's, it's maybe easy if you're doing something that's not sort of mission critical, but I often think of financial services, it's like medicine, right? You know, if you're going in for surgery, and you're lying on the cot with that blanket on top of you that is about as thick as a piece of paper, you do not want your surgeon to say, you know, hey, Vala, today I was thinking of doing something different. You, know, you want her to say, Vala, don't worry. I've done this a thousand times and you're going to be fine. Um, financial services is like that. We, we live in a world that needs to be predictable, repeatable, with no, non-volatile. And so we've had to really create ways for our employees to be able to bring their ingenuity 
to the forefront um, without introducing risk into the system. But I think when you can do that, you see the fruits of allowing people's curiosity and people's ideas to flourish across an institution rather than in one group. And the, the reality is that the world moves too quickly for innovation to be confined to a single group. It has to be something that's in the culture, the DNA of an institution. Having said that, I've met some of your team members um, at studios and they have an unquenchable thirst for exploring, adding value and, you know, whatever you're doing. I mean, every time I walk away, I'm super inspired by the work that your team is doing. Anyway, so just just to say that um, I know it doesn't sit in a team or an individual, but uh, the passion there is 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 awesome. It's really awesome. Sorry, Rick. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no. We, we definitely see that. So great job. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, when we think about like crises or we think about, you know, times that are challenging, I mean, this is historically places where new inventions come out, right? And lots of innovations pop up. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the 30s, the electric razor was created, the car radio, right? All these interesting <laughs> things like just pop up, right? Um, you know, we're facing something similar to that. Are you seeing any signs of this as you guys are starting, you know, your next rounds of investment, your seed investments, and of course, some of those corporate ventures that you guys are doing? Absolutely, Ray. I mean, if, you, if we'd been sitting together on Disrupt TV in March, I might have answered differently because there certainly was a brief pause in the startup world, um, particularly in the U.S. a little bit earlier around the world um, in kind of early March where no one knew what was going to happen in this crisis. But in fact, um, we've, seen, we've seen everything really power through. Um, we've made many investments where we've never met our founders in person, um, it's all been virtual. Um, and many of those are our founders are thinking about issues that are gonna be really important and trends that will accelerate as a result of this crisis. So whether you think about Anvil, that's a new portfolio company of ours who says, how do we take documents? Cause no one wants to touch documents anymore. And how do we turn those into sort of automated workflow and make things easier? Or on the other end of the spectrum, you know. I don't want to go to a bank. I want to see banking at the edge. I want the transaction to happen where I am. And, you know, you hear this talked about like, gee, wouldn't it be great when, you know, I pull into a gas station while well, I drive an electric car. But if I didn't, if I pull into a gas station and my car could pay for its own gas. Uh, but actually, that introduces a lot of network complexity. You know, earlier, we were talking about, you know, more than 127 devices get added to the network each and every second, every day of every year. Wow. So whether that number is precise or not, it doesn't matter. The heterogeneity of the network is amazing. And as a financial institution, we need to think about how do we authenticate those transactions that are happening at the edge? So a company like CarIQ that's thinking about you know, how do I know that that car is authorized to purchase that oil change or that car wash or that tank of gas? And how do I make sure that that's the case, even if the owner isn't the one being authenticated? So we see all across the, the industry, things that have been in the background kind of burbling up that have just mm -hmm. taken off full speed this year. And yes, I expect just like out of the last crisis, you know, you saw some of our portfolio companies like Square and Plaid really, you know, innovate in terms of how they thought about financial services. Um, we're seeing the same thing in this crisis. Of course, we can't predict the winners of, of the next decade yet, um, but we've been really encouraged by you know, entrepreneurs not giving up on their ambitions, but rather thinking about in this new world order, how, how can they add value? 
That's awesome. We had Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square on our show a few months ago, and he gave great advice to entrepreneurs. He said, when Jack and I were in the fintech space, we had no experience. But the important thing is we didn't disqualify ourselves based on experience because we were going after an unsolved problem. And by definition, if it's unsolved, you don't have experts. And uh, they competed and they you know, against Amazon and won. I don't know how many startups can say that. But anyway, it was an awesome Square story <laughs> that he shared with us. And in a, another awesome concept, I've read a couple of series of articles you've written about this concept of artificial enlightenment, the opportunity to leverage AI and analyze granular data in real time to deliver personalized insight. We talked to Jasper in the previous segment about creating value at the speed of need. So the amount of contextual intelligence you need to do to, to have access to in order to do real time value add is, 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 is an incredibly important uh, uh, you know, next step for companies to show relevance and compete. Can you talk a little bit about this concept of artificial enlightenment and how it's even more important during the pandemic and, and post-pandemic? Sure, I mean, you know, since 1965, we've had various conversations about AI, right? When is artificial intelligence gonna be here? And, and there have been AI winters and AI summers. Uh, and, you know, what's been really interesting over the past decade or two is that the compute power that's available to us has, has just grown in so many ways, whether you think by a long conversation earlier with Jesper about cloud, about, you know, the, just the ability to manage massive data sets, to manipulate that data, to figure out what the answer is. But artificial enlightenment, Vala, is really the idea that we can also use all that compute power not to mimic human intelligence, but to augment it. Um, and this is this is really important because prior to the tools that we just talked about, um, most of our com computational tools were tools that simply synthesized or aggregated information. So you had to make decisions based up, upon averages, upon norms, upon percentages. And it turns out that Actually, humans are not evolutionarily wired to make those kinds of decisions. We are evolutionarily wired to make decisions based upon like the individual data points that matter in our situation right now. So I'll give you two examples. Um, one, you, know, you read a lot, especially this year with all this economic dislocation about what's the unemployment rate? Is the GDP going up or down, et cetera? Now, that may be super interesting if you're an economist, um, but what really matters to all of us is, do we have a job that we can do now from where we live that allows us to provide for our family? And if the unemployment is really high, but I have a job, I might feel empathy for people who are unemployed, but I feel good that I'm getting a paycheck. And if the unemployment rate is really low and I can't find a job, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, so earlier this year, we launched a platform called Worthy. And Worthy is all about understanding you and your personal circumstances using massive data sets, using machine learning on the back end, but in order to help you make a better decision. So as an example, you know, you hear people talk about upskilling, right? Well, people are trying to upskill. In fact, $1.6 trillion of unpaid student debt in the US says people are trying, um, but they might not be upskilling in a way that matters because you know what? It could be the case that for Ray, learning Python really helps him get that next role. And for me, learning Python based upon what I already know or where I live is not relevant. And so Worthy lets you explore not in general, how do I think about a new role or a new job and making use of my skills, but 
for me based upon what I've already done, what I already know, where I live, what the demand is, how can I make a more effective decision? You asked about the pandemic, the same thing, right? Everyone is rightly obsessed with the numbers, right? 180,000 new cases in the US, right? Positivity rates. By the way, all these terms that a year ago, none of us even knew. Um, now we talk about like we're all epidemiologists. Um, the reality is that knowing that there are 180,000 new cases in the US yesterday does not help you figure out, is it safe to go to the grocery store today, right? If you had an app that took all of that data, but then boiled it down to what is the relevant information for you in context when you're trying to make a decision, then you would be combining the computational power that underlies AI with like all the evolutionary smarts that we all have and putting those together to help people make more effective decisions. And that's why we feel artificial enlightenment. It's not an either or with AI, yeah. but it should be equally important in terms of all those entrepreneurs out there thinking about how do they take the computational tools that we have today to make the world better. There, there is something to be said about the culture of your company. How is it that a bank and an innovation officer inside the bank how do you, is, is developing a program worthy that's doing a skills mapping to help your clients land better jobs, better opportunities, grow their wealth and improve their quality of life. Like, how, how, I mean, that, that's awesome. Like, I, I don't, you know, how does that happen? I mean, it seems like you have the autonomy to, to, to and in that company, we always say business is the greatest platform for change, but there's an example. I wouldn't expect a bank to career path and champion lifelong learning for their clients and yet you're doing it. That's just, just that's awesome. <laughs> you know I, mean? I think it's really important. I mean, if you look at the statistics that go back 50 years and you look at the rising inequality around the world sure. and then you say, well, wait a minute. So banks, you know, banks historically and in our mission at City, it's all about enabling economic progress, enabling economic vitality. And then you step back and you think, well, why is it then that banks only help me with the money I already have. Like, by the way, people all obsess about how much money they make, right? I, I guarantee if we were able to meet the three of us over a beer, um, we would not obsess about how much is in our savings account. But if it were right around the end of the year and we worked at the same company, we'd all be talking about like, is there gonna be a bonus pool? Mm -hmm. Do you think it's gonna be stock? Do you think it's gonna be this? Right? How, because you know, people are trying to provide for themselves or trying to provide for their families. And so you get yourself into this interesting mental space where you think, well, what if, what if a bank thought not just about helping you optimize what you already have in sort of monetary assets, but what if we helped you optimize the most important assets that you have, which are the skills that you have, right? In, in today's economy, the, the most important capital is actually human capital. It's what's your network? What are your skills? What's, what, what is your capacity to turn what you know into something that creates value? So if we could think about helping you maximize that human capital in the same way that we help you maximize sort of the, the dollars or, you know, that you have in the bank, um, then we can help you earn more, um, which by the way is also, and I think this is important, good business for us, right? right. Because right. if 
if I can help you earn more, then you may have more money in your savings account with me. And so we, we try and just think about at the core, what is it that the bank is trying to do and how if we, we looked at all of the, the ingenuity, all the tools available, how could we just slightly reimagine that, but in the same with the same purpose and the same vision that the bank holds already? This is one plus one equals three. I mean, everybody wins, community wins, employers win, your clients win, you win. It's just common sense, but it's unique. I haven't heard any, I haven't heard anybody in your space approach this. Uh, so that's awesome. Sorry, Ray. I'm just, no, I'm just no, thinking no, this like, why didn't do this? <laughs> It's about growing the pie, but sadly, we are almost out of time. So, um, Vanessa, thank you so much for sharing your insights, sharing about what's happening. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things coming out of City Ventures, a lot of investments. They all seem to have a great social purpose. We're here with Vanessa Kalela, Chief Innovation Officer, Head of City Ventures and City Productivity uh, at City. You can follow the company Twitter handle at City. Thank you so much. Hope to see you in the Bay Area when things get better. Thank you both. Vanessa, you're terrific. My God, that. 20 minutes flew by, Ray. That flew by fast. <laughs> like two minutes. Uh, okay, well, you know, traditionally, this is our cleanup hitter spot where the last guest comes and hits a grand slam. So we're honored to have Scott Zoldi, Chief Analytics Officer at FICO, responsible for the analytics development of the company's products and technology solutions, including FICO Falcon, Fraud Manager products, uh, which protect about two-thirds of the world's payments and transaction from far two thirds of the world's payment. While at FICO, Scott has been responsible for authoring, right, just sit back for this stat, <laughs> 110 patents. Wow. Uh, 56 granted, 56 in-, in There's not in, enough in walls in your house for all those patents. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 yeah, I, we've interviewed 656 guests on our show and you are our number one patent champion of 656 guests. Uh, Scott's actively involved in developing new analytics products utilizing AI and machine learning, which we're gonna talk about in this segment, many of which has leveraged new streaming artificial intelligence innovations such as adaptive analytics, collaborative profiling, deep learning, and surf learning models. Really, truly a world expert, uh, Scott. Scott's most recent focus is explainable machine learning architectures, bias detection, ethical AI, uh, unbelievable topics, and blockchain model governance. Uh, Scott serves on two boards of directors, including Tech San Diego and um, Cyber Center of Excellence. You can follow Scott on Twitter at S-C-O-T-T-Z-O-L-D-I. Welcome, Scott, to Disrupt TV, our patent champion. <laughs> Thank you, Vala. Uh, great to be here. Hey, Ray. Hey, thanks Amazing. a lot for being here. Amazing. I mean, I, when I think about AI, I, I just remember, like, I spent a summer at uh, Caltech in the 80s. And, you know, there's a guy that was working on his PhD. He basically was just zoning in, trying to figure out how to get a machine to read the letter A, right? And, you know, I came in, it was this PhD party. It was kind of fun. And we're all hanging out with him. And we started figuring out, hey, you know, what are you going to do next, right? And so, you know, we, we you know, finally asked him, like, he's probably got awesome jobs at all these places lined up because it's a pretty cool PhD, right? Getting, yep. you know, machine language, you know, machine learning, computer learning to figure out, you know, a character. So we're like, hey, what are you going to do? What's hot? And he goes to us, not the letter B, lowercase a. <laughs> He's stuck on for another five years trying to figure this out. But AI is finally here, right? So let's talk about it. Let's talk about what's responsible. Why is it important? How's it happening? Uh, and I think it's a pretty important uh, topic. And you're smack in the middle of it. 
Yeah, I mean, this is it's a, it's an amazing field to be in, right? Um, you know, I, I think you know you mentioned the patents. It's it's really a reflection of all the sort of innovation that's occurring in the AI and machine learning space, and you know, it's 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 also a, a ramification of all the data that flows through um, with with digital and increasingly with more and more digital. And so the opportunities to use AI and machine learning to improve our lives and to automate our decisions uh, has never been greater. Um, but at the same time, right, um, this is exactly why we need to focus on topics like uh, responsible AI. And so, you know, we have situations where models are being built where we may not understand how they will behave or how they will adjust to changing environments. And, and this is really where we, we have to ask the questions. Are, are we being responsible by building and deploying a model that we may not understand sufficiently um, and, and applying that to customer data? And so... What this concept of responsible AI is, is actually allowing the, the field to grow up a little bit um, and to and gain some maturity and say, well, you know, we have to have a framework around this. And you know, for us, you know, that might be you have to build a model robustly. Um, you need to be able to explain that model to understand why it's so performant. Um, you need to ensure that it's ethical and not being biased towards any particular groups. And finally, right, you need to have a, a process in place so you can monitor that when you start to use it, right? So the, the job of the data scientist doesn't stop when you build the model, right? It, it stops when the model stops being used um, for, for on customers. And I think that's the whole, that encompasses everything which is responsible AI. Scott, how much of that responsibility is a function of the data uh, versus the algorithm and the questions here and, and the analysis of the data? And, and the second part of my question is, do you need to have, um, equality and diversity and inclusion as part of your culture of your company in order to enable in order to achieve responsible AI because without that how do you avoid the blind spots and the biases that come I mean if I at random selected 20 AI machine learning experts in a room how many of them are women how many of our represent minority groups um, so it, to me, it feels like there's a cultural element, there's a data quality element, there is, you know, uh, tra transparency because uh, explainability can come into question the deeper the layer, the more complex the algorithms. Can you talk to us about what are the success factors to get to this end result where you can actually demonstrate with confidence that you have a responsible approach to using and delivering services that are AI powered. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a great point, Bala. I mean, first, one has to have a diversity and, and an ethical sort of stance within an organization. And that includes, you know, having, you know, teams that are made up of uh, male and female and different ethnicities and, and different part, people from different parts of the world, um, because that provides perspectives on things that that we don't might not be aware of. Right. Um, given, you know, a, a particular group of, of people looking at a set of data. So, First is, you know, valuing that, right? And that's really a corporate standard and, and one that every uh, corporation should, should focus on. Then it comes down to, you know, looking very critically at the data that's being used, right? Is, you know, what are the biases? All data is biased because unfortunately we live in a biased society today. And so being able to recognize that, to call that out, uh, is, is really important. And you may be able to supplement that data to correct for some of that bias potentially. Or you just acknowledge that, that it's there and then look at what the model is learning. And that is the second part or third part of this is, is the model itself. As, you, as you've done your best to de-bias and, and, and take uh, discrimination or, or out of the data, 
Um, you train this model, you get a model, you need to be able to look inside and understand what is it that the model is grabbing a hold of that's driving performance. Is that particular, let's say, latent feature, one of these things that the model's learned, is it, is it really focused on something that would be discriminatory towards a group of people or where they live? And if so, no matter how much prediction you might get, you'd say no. We're not willing to get a better model at the expense of being uh, potentially discriminatory towards a group of people. And, you know, at, at FICO, I have the saying, which is explainable first and predictive second. And it's very different than the way most organizations would look at machine learning models where they would value prediction. Uh, we have to change our framework and the way we look at these problems, right? And because, you know, we impact human lives. And, and, and you know, very often when you're sitting there as a data scientist working with models and data, you may, you're not looking at the people that you're impacting, right? And so we have to constantly put our, our, ourselves in that frame of reference that this will be used to impact someone's life and we have to take it very, very seriously. So it's a combination of you know, ethics as a company and diversity. It's around understanding that data very well and then looking very critically at what that model learns. Yeah, I know. And one of the things that we've been talking about, I've been working with Dr. David Bray, we put out something around AI ethics, right? Making sure that things are explainable, right? You've got to be able to see what's going on. You've got to make sure that they're reversible, right? So you have the transparency, the explainable, the ability to reverse, you know, untrain those things. And then of course, you know, train, right? Pair humans and machines to get to the right level. And then of course, make sure there's a human involved at the end of the process if, if you want to make sure there's some level of control. Um, but when we think about AI ethics today, um, where, where do you see the, the biggest areas where we can improve, right? Because when you expand on these explainable machine learning models and we think about ethical AI, everybody seems to have a deficiency somewhere, right? And there doesn't seem to be some standards as to what makes for a good ethical uh, AI approach. And, and yeah. to, to, to add to that, does every company need the ethical and humane use of AI officer or lead, you know, to, to help, you know, uh, provide the necessary frameworks to ensure the company is following, you know, the right, right, right guidance? Yeah, so uh, no, it, it's absolutely the right questions to be asking. And, and Vala, I, I would say, yes, um, there has to be someone responsible within the corporation to set a standard. Um, you know, we can't have a situation where we say, you know, we'll, we'll do no evil, right? And we can't also have a situation where we leave it up to data scientist artistry. Um, there has to be a blueprint. There has to be a framework of what it means to develop a, a, uh, a responsible model. And what are the standards of the corporation or firm and have that codified within a process. And it's really important that it is defined by a, by a single entity within an organization. Uh, and what's also important, and, and I think I would say it's critically important in today's day and age, is that it's enforced. And you know, as an example of that, right, one of the things that we focus on is what we call a model development uh, uh, blockchain. And this blockchain basically enforces the, the governance around how to build an ethical model um, where you'd go through the steps of, okay, what is the data that was sourced? Um, how have you de-biased so block, it? Blockchain for ethical AI. So. Co yeah, correct. It's just like a smart contract yeah, yeah, exec yeah. executed on the, uh, on the code. Yeah, and, and, and what we do there is we basically, you know, we record all the scientists, we record the requirements, we go through the steps, and we make sure the process is followed, right? And, and this is critically important for a, for a whole bunch of reasons. One is because, you know, we, we need to have it be immutable. We need to know how, how those things were, were, how we reached the end game here. We also, frankly, need to, even if that process was followed all the way through, you know, the development of the model, extraction of understanding of what that model is, ensuring that it was um, ethically developed, we need to be able to go and uh, monitor what is it that we have to be watching for uh, in that model moving forward? So like the FTC says, well, um, 
it's not enough to build an ethical model. You need to be monitoring that model continuously to ensure that it is ethical and, and non-biased. And the only really great way to do that is to have that governance blockchain where you can go back and say, okay, these were the, the, the learned latent features that caused the model to, to do well. This is what the model's sensitive to. This is the results of, let's say, some of our biased testings and things to look uh, look at um, as the model is in production. And we know we need no better example than the pandemic and, and how different corporations question the, their models um, and how to monitor those models and whether they should continue to use those models as an example of the importance of having a, a, a blockchain. Um, you know, what, what happens typically prior to this is that, you know, a data scientist builds a model. It takes months or maybe a year to deploy the model. There's a problem with the model and you find out that data science no longer works at the firm and, and maybe they don't have the, the proper notes, right? And, and we've, we've heard statistics where, you know, mm -hmm. models are developed and, you know, 95% of them don't ever make it to production, right? So you, you, it, it serves a bunch of purposes, but for, for us, it's around being safe and responsible, right? With respect to the development and the monitoring of these models. Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I believe trust needs to be number one core value of companies, uh, especially in this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy. But it's been a couple of years since I read Kai, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee's book, AI Superpowers US-China. And I thought one of the takeaways from reading his book was this process of making algorithms explainable over time is it's dumbifying the algorithms where you're not reaching the full potential of the power of AI, where you can make decisions on thousands of data points in real time to make the prediction or prescribe the next best action. So should models self-learn and self-adjust? And how do you do that if you're constrained with uh, radical transparency, explainability, and really having the algorithm have to explain to you and I how it got to the end result where you know we humans can't process like an AI machine learning algorithm. So, so I, I I don't I don't know the balance of you know self learning, self adjusting, and at the same time having to demonstrate with efficacy the 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 the, the, the ethics and explainability of the models. I, I'm not sure if my question is clear. So, but no, uh, it, it is clear, and I think this is probably the next hundred patents, right? Because there's there's a lot there to unroll and unpack, and <laughs> and I I think you know one of the things that's really interesting here is um and 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 you know an area of of, of research I'm very interested in is is reg tech, right? And so regulation itself is is imposing the rules of the game, right? And we. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we we have these sort of contrary views that regulation doesn't allow for innovation, right? And and so you should allow innovation to kind of grow out, and then eventually you 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 know you'd run uh, you run uh, against the regulation, and that would contract, right? And I think the two actually should work symbiotically. You know, they should feed off of each other because you could understand, you know, how best to develop a model. Um, that will meet the regulatory environment, right? And so an example of that, you know, the, the most current sort of methods of doing this is actually changing the, way, the types of machine learning models used to solve some of these regulated problems or, you know, uh, situations where we impact human life where um, we'll build models that are highly constrained in terms of, let's say, only having a couple of inputs to each latent feature. So it's not a fully connected network. It's a sparsely connected network. That allows the data scientist to look at each of the latent features be able to explain it, do all the bias detection and, and, and stability analysis so you can have confidence in that model. Um, but at the same time, right, you don't actually typically leave a lot on the table in terms of, of, of prediction, right? So I, I think, you know, from, from my perspective, um, you know, the, the regulation and, and innovation help to, to drive new types of machine learning models. Now, 
with respect to this this concept of allowing them to retrain, um, generally, you know, the, the view is is that that's a really risky proposition because if you allow the machine to just respin the data, right, then you haven't gone through the steps of looking at that data, you haven't gone through the steps of extracting the explainable features or doing that ethical uh, aspect. And, and ultimately, what we found over time was not only do you take you know, risks from an ethics perspective or a regulatory perspective, um, those models tend to degrade very quickly. So you're learning something that you know, doesn't stay you know, the, the, the course of time. So you might have learned what was interesting in the last couple of weeks, right? But really, you gain more information from this larger sort of worldview of, of, let's say, a year or 18 months worth of data. And so, you know, how do you do that properly? Um, typically, what it means is you apply another model on top of the machine learning model. Think of it like a, a tutor or, or, you know, yeah, layer on top. And then so you have the core model making decisions. It starts to make, a, you know, a little bit less ideal decisions. And you'd have another layer, which would be, a let's say, a linear model. And that linear model could be explained. You'd know what drives it. And it slightly tweaks it and, and allows those models to, to continue to perform. And that way... You, you don't change the core machine learning model, which is really where all this responsible AI work has to be done, and it takes time, right? Um, but then you have this linear model that you can very quickly inspect, understand how it's adjusting, and then make a decision around, you know, when is it time to, let's say, retrain that that, that core machine learning model? And we, we found that to be very, very successful. And, and frankly, it gets into this sort of concept of, you know, humble AI, where, you know, we, we have to go and, and ensure that, you know, when is it time to, let's say, step away from the AI model and, and, and to a, a technology that is a little bit safer. I love the discussion of humble that someone's got 100 patents working on 200 <laughs> patents. By the way, Ray, from now on, we're going to have a requirement. All guests that come on Disrupt need to have at least 10 patents. <laughs> <laughs> we're not showing up to our own shows, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we need to do the most. No, but hey, this is this is this is exciting, right? And and we're seeing like the you know as, as uh, Bala was talking about. I mean, there are AI wars happening, right? And we're seeing different models emerge, different cultural standards and norms. Um, it doesn't seem like we're going to get to one type of approach. Uh, but what's the closest you think we'll get to in terms of the rules for AI? Are they going to be like Asimov's rules or are they going to be a little bit different and, and a little bit more convoluted? Um, so, so, you know, my, my view is that we're going to find collectives of groups that are going to try to, to solve this problem. And, you know, uh, I very often get asked to, like, you know, sit on uh, – on, on boards with banks to try to get you know many a, a single sort of vantage point on how to solve the problem um, and how to address the regulation. And so I think what we're going to see is uh, technologies get accepted for particular problems where you know they want to meet that regulatory sort of environment. Uh, it's it's becoming too hard um, to solve it on on one's own, right? So I, I think. Um, you know, I, I could look at an example from credit risk, right, and, and credit lending, where scorecard technologies are really the, the prominent technology, and they're they're prominent because they're explainable. Everyone understands it. The regulators are comfortable with it, and they they've met that that point. And so, you know, we have this interesting sort of pull in between you know innovation leaders and then those that are being you know running up against the, the regulation, and they're all going to pull together, and they're going to pull together to say, okay. This is the methods we're going to use. This is how we're going to explain it. This is how we're going to have a blockchain, right, to demonstrate to the regulators that we took care and we followed a corporate governance pro uh, process. And then, you know, this is what our process for refining that over time and, and improving it over time. And, um, you know, I, I think that's going to be the, the where we're going to head. And, and each of these segments will have different requirements, whether it be financial services or whether it be networking or whether it be, you know, industrial. Um, but, but you know, this, these sort of best practices will be uh, uh, achieved. And I think, again, 
it will probably not be about the most predictive model. It's going to have to be around the models that you can trust and you'll, you know, when not to trust them. Um, and, you know, we don't, so far we haven't had any major catastrophes with, with AI and machine learning. But, you know, it, this is where there, there's a lot of work still need to be done because uh, we did a survey uh, a while back and asked how many uh, chief analytics officers and chief data officers are actually monitoring their models. Right? And it was only 67%. And these are, these are chief data scientists, chief analytics officers, who so you'd think would know better, right? And so that shows you kind of, you know, that a lot of these models are, aren't being monitored at all. So there's a lot of work to be done. And, and I think this is where these standards will be built up over time. Wow. We're here with Scott Zoldi, chief analytics officer at FICO. You can follow him on Twitter at S-C-O-T-T-Z-O-L-D-I. And thank you so much for giving us a Grand Slam, Scott. That was possible. <laughs> great segment. Really. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Ray, lots of nuggets of wisdom with all three guests. But it's just an, it's an incredible time. And I think, you know, topics like ethical use of AI, these will be, you know, topics that our children, uh, you know, will see in their companies. So for many decades, I think we're going to be dealing with oh, yeah. trying to understand. Just like, just like bio research, right? I mean, some of the uh, standards yeah, yeah, that we're yeah, putting on absolutely. ethical research for biology, same things can happen right. on AI, same things can happen in right. other technologies, uh, especially. And your last question sentence. about like what's going to help scale and take off, you know, we had the inventor of TCP IP on our show, Vince Cerf. TCP IP helped scale the internet. We had HTTP uh, protocol help, you know, scale the web. Yeah, what is that, you know, standardization where different multiple industries converge and, and collaborate under a standard framework to, to build well, we these models trust, following the... We might even have that? trust but verify types of approaches for people's AI models, yeah. right, that pop up. But hey, we the are back time. December 4th. <laughs> Who do we have on episode 215? Yeah, again, Thanksgiving next week. So Friday we're off. Uh, we'll, our, our next show will be... Um, Friday, December 4th, and we have, that's episode 215, for those of you keeping track. Renee Lassert, CEO and founder of Bill.com. Flory Marquez, co-founder of BlockFi. And John Bolin, chief information officer at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. Oh, very good. I'm looking forward Cosmo. to those The Cosmo Hotel is awesome. We got some good, <laughs> here's some really cool stories about how they opened up, uh, from what I can tell. That's awesome. So, so Ray, closing uh, closing thoughts before Thanksgiving. Certainly, we want to give on behalf of L, our producer Ray, myself. We want to thank uh, you know our viewers. You know you are who inspire us to, to to do this every week, and we thank you for your advocacy, your support, and your suggestions in terms of how we can improve our show. By the way, before I give you the closing remarks, we've met as a team, and we're thinking about 2021. We're thinking about the themes that are important to our audience based on what we see on social. And, you know, please use hashtag Disrupt uh, TV, connect to myself, Ray, Al, suggest guests, and we'll do our best to take your suggestions. And if folks like the suggestions and we see that there's certain guests that are, uh, you know, favorites of our, our, our audience, we'll do our best to get them on the show. So, and whoever they are, so give us some moonshot goals, give us some folks that you may be familiar with, but we'd love to have your input because as you know, we tend to book two, three months ahead. So if you want to see folks on January, February, March on Disrupt, this is the time for you to let reach us out to us. Now. Okay, let right, closing now. No, no, let us know now. And uh, yeah, no, same thing. A lot to be thankful and uh, wishing everyone a great Thanksgiving, a safe Thanksgiving. And more importantly, uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, everyone. Bye.